Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Good to see all of you guys. Happy Easter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, it's okay to be excited. It's great. It's like really exciting to celebrate Easter with you guys. Easter is like an awesome holiday. Probably a lot of you, even if maybe you're not the church-going type, Easter, you have like some sort of warm place in your heart for maybe you remember like Easter egg hunts when you were a kid. Maybe you remember like eating tremendously unhealthy food at your grandmother's house growing up. We are going to pay tribute to that tradition by having a donut social that you're invited to immediately after this gathering. You're welcome. You picked the right Sunday to be here. Uh, really, for us, um, probably the biggest reason that we love celebrating Easter is I feel like it shines the spotlight on what makes Christianity unique, what makes Christianity unique, what makes Christianity unlike any other philosophy, religion, worldview, and really what differentiates Christianity from all other expressions of faith or philosophy is that we believe like the founder of our faith, he didn't just live and he didn't just die, but he actually got back up again. And because Jesus Christ is alive, because he resurrected, that's what we celebrated Easter, because Jesus is alive, he's still in the business of changing lives today. And, and as a consequence then, what you have to understand about Christianity is it's not like about the accumulation of information primarily. Like the reason that we gather in this room is not because we happen to be a collection of individuals who are interested in the topic of religion. No, like you have to understand because Jesus is alive and changing lives today. Like Christianity is not first and foremost about the accumulation of information, but instead it's about an invitation. It's about an invitation to enter into a relationship with the true and living God. And that's what you're going to see. Like, you're going to see stories of people over the next few weeks who basically said yes to that invitation. Now, the reason all of this is, like, really good news for us is because it's ultimately relationships and not information that are most kind of, like, profoundly shaping things in our lives. I mean, it's really easy to think about this. You think about, like, the relationship of marriage, for example. Like, if any of you are married or know anybody who's married, I think that's all of you in this room. Like, it's not that hard for you to see. Like, okay, that relationship, it impacts where I live. It impacts if I'm happy today or not happy today. It, it impacts a lot of my life. Like, information doesn't have that kind of power. I was even thinking about this in my own life, in my own marriage. And there was a time in my life where all I had about my... The, the woman that I was going to marry, Megan, was information. Now, that probably makes it seem like she was a mail-order bride. She was not a mail-order bride. Let me kind of like calm your fears there whatsoever. Um, this is going to make probably for most of you, like probably make you seem very, very old. For others of you, it'll make me seem very, very young. But you're looking at one of the first people who had the opportunity to sort of date the person I would marry online before we would actually go on real dates. Like Facebook was just becoming a thing when we first started dating. And so I can distinctly remember before Megan and I ever had a lengthy conversation, before like we ever went on our first date, like I was on Facebook and I knew the places she liked to eat. I knew the places she had visited. I knew the quotes she found inspirational. I knew the bands that she liked. Like I understand, right? Like it seems a little sketchy, but you all do it. So don't judge me, okay? Like, you know, if you're on a first date with anybody, you're Facebooking them and you're trying to figure out like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm canceling that. You know, you do the exact same thing as well, so don't judge me whatsoever. But here's the really interesting thing, is like, even though I had all this, even though I'd accumulated all this information about this woman, none of it profoundly shaped my life, right? Like, it wasn't like, man, you know what's going to dramatically shape where I live and what I do for the rest of my life? I discovered this girl online who loves the band still called the Backstreet Boys. I'm not sure how she still loves it into the 2000s, but she does, and that is going to change everything. No, of course not. Information doesn't have that type of power, but when that information started to become a relationship, and we, we met, and we ended up uh, going on a date, and then going on many dates, and then got engaged, and they got married, and now we became parents. It's like in each one of those series of kind of... Uh, 
progression in our relationship, you started to see the power that a relationship has in our lives. And again, this is so easy for a lot of you to see here as well. I mean, plenty of you have done the online dating thing. None of those online profiles have like changed your life, right? I mean, somebody may have seemed interested, but none of you like, oh, you know, I'm going to move to Florida because here's a profile of somebody that I, that I found who lives there who seems interesting. Don't do that. That would be crazy desperate. Do not do that whatsoever. That'd be a weird thing to do. But you know, like as soon as that online dating becomes like, oh, we actually went on a date, it changes. It changes dramatically. For some of you, it's better. For a lot of you, it's been the worst. And you're like, you lied a lot. And now I know that. But like, you know exactly kind of how this goes. And, and so all this is to say, it's really good news for us that at the heart of the Christian faith is not so much the accumulation of information, although that's an aspect of it, but at the heart of beat of it is really the invitation uh, for a relationship, an, an invitation to enter into a relationship with the God who is still alive and, and still in the business of changing lives today. And so in order to kind of make a lot of those ideas really tangible, the fortunate thing that we have here is actually a story of a man, he's an Ethiopian guy, who exemplifies how this happens in our lives. And really what I'm hoping is the same thing that we see happen in his life 2,000 years ago happens in some of your lives in the next half hour or so. That's kind of my cards on the table. That's what I desire for you. And that some of you will even make the same decision that this man made uh, here at the end of this story. So if you want to look at the text with us, if you're new here, we just kind of walk through stories in the Bible verse by verse so you can kind of get an idea of what exactly went down. We're going to see are kind of three major themes develop in terms of how God desires uh, for us to have a relationship with him. Now, the first we're going to see is just that God pursues you for a relationship. God pursues you for a relationship. Now, to give you a context of this book, uh, for any of you who've been here at the summit for any period of time, you spent a while going through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, that basically tells the story of Jesus' life. The book of Acts that we're studying now happens after Jesus' life. So Jesus lives, he dies, he resurrects, and the book of Acts is basically what happens in the several years immediately following the resurrection of Jesus. And what's happened is Jesus is alive, he's changing lives, he's changing a lot of lives. It started in a little city called Jerusalem, and then it spreads more and more. Until this part of the story, it's actually hit a region called Samaria. And it's kind of just outside of Samaria or so where this story unfolds. Now, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this. Um, we're going to meet first this man named, uh, he's not actually given a name, he's just called the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, we're going to start in verse 27 as we learn four particular things about this guy. And I hope as we kind of d- dig into this, you see how much we have in common uh, with this man. Now, the first thing we learn, uh, we'll come back to verse 26, but look at verse 27. The first thing we learn is he's just a man of great wealth and influence. He's a man of great wealth and influence. We see this because it says he was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So the, the kind of the job description we're getting is a guy who runs the finances for the entirety of Ethiopia. Ethiopia was not just a country back in the first century. It was actually an entire empire. It was huge, very powerful, very influential, everything south of the Nile River. And so this guy's ex- essentially the minister of finance for the government. Or if he was in business, he would be called the chief financial officer. So very prominent, very influential. He's very dedicated to his job as well. If you notice, he's called a eunuch. The reason why is because in the first century, if somebody had a place of influence like this, particularly they're going to be working directly with the queen, they would often be uh, castrated um, so that there could be no potential of a political relationship scandal. That's kind of all the detail I'll go into all about that. But like, here's a guy who's way more dedicated to his job than any of you in this room. That's what you need to understand. He's very devoted to what he does, and he's very powerful and very influential. Second, all right, everybody back? Okay. Second, 
He's a man of great spiritual longing. He's a man of great spiritual longing. We see this because he had come from Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, from where he went in Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem is about 1,200 miles. That's about the distance from where I'm standing right now to Atlanta, Georgia. I do not want to do that car ride over multiple days, and I definitely don't want to do that chariot ride over many, 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 many weeks unless I have a very, very good reason to do that. But here's this guy who's essentially kind of left everything and taking a break from his work, and he's going to Jerusalem to try to find God. Like, maybe you've done this. Maybe you have a friend like this who, like, left their job, and they went to India to find God. Do you know anybody like this? I feel like Denver's full of people who do this. I don't know who has jobs that can do this, but they do this, right? And so here's another guy who did this all the way back in the first century. And it's like, I mean, in some ways it's a little bit silly, but in a lot of ways it's really admirable because here's this guy who from kind of the the surface level perspective, it seems like he has everything together, right? Great job, super influential. I mean, he's got the dream job. And it's like there's still this frustratingly perpetual longing deep inside the recesses of his soul. A lot of you can probably relate to that. Probably a lot of you, you know, we talk about this a lot. Denver is a unique city in terms of the fact that a lot of people choose to move to Denver. A lot of people choose to move to Denver because of the quality of life that Denver offers. I mean, in Denver, right, in the same afternoon, you can get world-class ice cream, world-class craft beer, and you can watch Major League Baseball. It's not world-class. We're actually terrible. But you can (laughs) at least go to a game all in the same afternoon. And for a lot of you, somebody said this to me last week. I said, why'd you choose to move to Denver? He's like, man, well, I always vacation here. Why wouldn't I want to live where I vacation? It's like, man, that's a really legitimate point. But for a lot of you in this room, you've been here, especially I meet a lot of people who moved to Denver and they've been here for a year, two years, three years, and they kind of expected like this was going to be a magical place. It would make all of my deepest problems and longings disappear. And then all of a sudden it's like, like I enjoy skiing, but it doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. This guy is working through the exact same thing. Man, it seems like from the world's perspective, I have everything that I want, and yet that longing is still there. And so he goes to Jerusalem to find God. Now, the third thing we learn about him as he's a man still lacking a real relationship with God. Now, we know this because of what happens next. God basically pursues him, starts pursuing him for the sake of obtaining a real relationship. It says in verse 29, in the spirit, that's God the Holy Spirit, he said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, this is really interesting because we exist in a culture where we tend to think that all that matters is that somebody is spiritual, We tend to think that all that matters if you want to be right with God and if you have some sort of concept of heaven and hell is like, oh, like I have some sort of faith. But while the culture might say that, what's interesting in the story is it's not so much like, do you have faith? Really, everybody has faith. What really matters is the object of your faith. Does that thing or person that you put your faith in have the capacity to save you? What matters is not, are you a spiritual person? Because in Denver, we sort of exalt that, right? Like, we would meet this guy and be like, man, you went that far? Of course you're right with God. Man, it doesn't matter if you're spiritual or not. Everybody's spiritual in one way or another. Are you spiritual in the right way? That's why God is pursuing him for a relationship. All right. Now, what's also interesting about this is not only is he lacking a real relationship with God, but he's a man being pursued for a real relationship by God as well. I love this part of the story. If you go back to verse 26, we kind of get the bird's eye view of everything that God is orchestrating. So this guy that's trying to find God actually does find God. But look at verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and he went. Now, what's interesting, kind of the context of all this, just prior to this, mass revival has broke out, and it's broken out in really, really uh, influential areas. And it's crazy. It's like crazy the degree to which God will pursue this individual guy because he plucks up this individual, this incredible leader, Philip, and he takes him away from this like urban center of great influence, and he sends him to the middle of nowhere because he wants to redeem a single guy back to himself. This should be so challenging to a lot of you because I think that like the majority of people in our city believe in God and I think the majority of people in our city believe that God is loving or favorable towards the world but sort of my assessment of it is the majority of you kind of think of God loving the world in this very sort of vague general sense like he almost looks at the entire earth and he's just like I'm for you guys. And so that's not what you're seeing here. If that's what you think about God's love towards humanity, you're actually wrong because he loves passionately and he loves individually and it's revealed through the degree to which he will go in order to rescue a single man from his spiritual blindness. Where we see this in particular and where this should like really, really jump out to you is where it says kind of where he's sent. It says he was sent to Gaza to like go find this guy and it says this is a desert place. Now, it's a little like parentheses, right? Because a lot of us, we don't know Gaza. I don't know if any of you have been there before. I haven't been there before. But historically, what Gaza was was like the middle of nowhere. That's what we would say. Like imagine almost, I don't know, has anybody ever been to Yellowstone before and done the drive from Denver to Yellowstone? On the way from Denver to Yellowstone, there are a collection of towns. I will use that like parenthetically, towns, uh, maybe like village, small village would be like the best way to describe it. Like you go and it's got like a gas station, it's got a Dairy Queen, and then it's got like a cop who's like ready to pull you over when you speed through this town uh, because like they don't want you to run over the tumbleweed. Like, sorry, Adrian, I see you from, like I feel you judging me. He's from Wyoming. So I feel like he's judging me. So if any of you, uh, anybody else here is from Wyoming, I'm sorry, but you also know that it's true, okay? So, so imagine that. That's Gaza. It's the middle of nowhere. It's, abs- it's like the least likely place in the world, and yet God so is pursuing a relationship with this guy. He'll take one of his best leaders, pluck him out of this area of great influence, and send him to this middle of nowhere wear town for the sake of winning this man back to himself. Now, what's so, pa- what's so powerful, I feel like, about all of this, um, you know, and we don't see this in the text, but I'm just trying to, like, put myself in this guy's place, the Ethiopian guy's place. If I'm there, man, I, I feel like the first thing that I'm thinking to myself, like, when I bump into Philip in this moment is, like, man, like, well, what are the chances Right, like, isn't that crazy? Like, man, like, this is the middle of nowhere. I didn't think I'd see anybody here. I just bumped into this guy here. Like, what in the world are the chances that this would happen? And yet we're, like, super fortunate to get kind of the bird's eye view of what God is orchestrating and doing kind of in this. It's like, no, it's not a series of dinks. It's not a series of just, like, oh, these things. It's like, no, like, God has been orchestrating the entirety of this man's story all towards a single, secure conclusion of this man entering into a relationship with God. Yeah, I thought about this a little bit this past week. Um, you know, like this past week, like the weather in Denver was like super bipolar, right? It was like the weirdest thing ever. And it was like the day after tomorrow, like earlier this week, like the movie The Day After Tomorrow, not just The Day After Tomorrow. That's a little bit confusing. A lot of you aren't as old as me, so you probably haven't seen that movie at all. Basically, the world ends because of snow. So a lot of you, that was Wednesday for us. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, but like Monday, Monday's like 80 degrees. It was beautiful. And, and I got home from work. <clears throat> 
and uh, got home from work kind of late because we're getting ready for Easter stuff and all that. And uh, I get home, and uh, my daughter, she's two, and uh, I ask her, like, what exactly is it that you want to do? And she says she wants to go for a walk. And I say, well, where do you want to go for a walk? And she says, I want to go to the bank. Um, now, the reason my daughter wants to go to the bank, there's a bank like two blocks away from my house. It's the Wells Fargo on Welton. The reason she wants to go to the bank, she is not particularly interested in financials, okay? She's not like that advanced beyond her years. Um, she goes there because our bank, like most banks, gives lollipops to small children. And uh, my daughter actually calls it the pop bank. Like, so that's what she just sort of figures. That's what this place of business does. They just give lollipops out to whoever wants them. So, so it's like, okay, let's go to the pop bank. And we're getting ready. Okay, we'll do that. Absolutely, I would love to do that. And then all of a sudden, it hits me. The pot bank is closed, right? I got home too late, and I can already sort of prophetically see into the future. This is how it's going to happen. We're going to walk to the bank. We're going to get there. She's going to push on the glass door. It's going to be locked. She's going to be the saddest look ever, and there won't be any pops, and there will just be tears and sadness everywhere. So I've already told her we can go. I already see this is going to happen, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I kind of resolve all of this? So I tell her, okay, go put on your shoes, and she's putting on her shoes. I go to sort of the secret stash of lollipops in our pantry, and I grab one, and I stick it in uh, my pocket, and it's like, let's do this. Let's go for a walk. Now, uh, any of you who parent in the city, you know how a walk with your children goes. They want to walk, and you're sort of like hovering around them the entire time. It takes like 45 minutes to go two blocks, and you've protected them from dying like 17 times. But during that period of time as well, we finally get from my house to the bank, Hannah pushes on the door, it's locked, and she looks up at me with the saddest and most, like, her little lip is quivering. It's just like the saddest thing you could ever imagine whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, I'm able to kneel down and say, Hannah, look. And she turns around, and I have strategically placed the single lollipop by the door. And, uh, man, I'm just proud of that. Like, that's like dad level 10 stuff right there. And so I just want to share that story. There's not even a point that I have with that story. I just want to, no, I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. Like, like man, here, here's what blew me away. I was really proud of that. I was like, man, I'm, I'm getting better at this thing. But, but, but what blew me away was the way that Hannah reacted. The way that Hannah reacted, see, the way that Hannah reacted was she saw it and she was just like, ooh, pop. Like, that's literally what she said. It was almost like she willed it into existence. It's almost like it was just there. Like, it was an accident. She just stumbled upon it. Isn't it crazy? Like, I mean, she's two, right? Like, from her finite perspective, it just seems like she stumbled upon the very thing that she wanted the most. And yet, from, like, the actual perspective of reality, all along that journey, there was a loving, guiding father who was protecting her and taking her along the way so that she would find the very thing that she wanted the most. That's what God is doing in the life of this guy. And what's so important for you to understand is that this guy's story is your story as well. It's almost meant to be like a mirror that reflects back to you the truth of what it is that God has done in your life, even to lead you to this moment right here, right now. It's easy. It's easy for you to believe that your life is nothing but sort of chance and you sort of put out positive vibes to the universe and hopefully things will go well and there's coincidences and it's like that, that's not how the God who made you is working in your life. You know, it's really interesting. Like later in Acts, like there's a sermon and as the sermon's going on, one of the things it says is this. As God made every nation of humanity to live all over the earth, fixing the seasons of the year and the national boundaries which they live. And so it's sort of a declaration. God made you. He determined where you would live and when you would live. And then the text goes on to say this, all for a singular purpose, so that they might look for God, somehow reach for him, and find him. 
The reason you live where you live, the reason you've experienced what you've experienced, the reason you've been through what you've been through is all because of the guiding hand of a loving, sovereign father who's pushing you towards, hopefully, the, the conclusion of you entering into a relationship with him. You're not here because you're American and it's Easter, okay? Like, if you could just think critically whatsoever to the series of sort of random life events that you thought that have led to you sitting in this room in this moment, and it's, it's not random chance. It's the guiding hand of a father. Everything good in your life is from God. And it's not meant to be an end to itself, but instead to function like signposts that point you to the God who is behind all that beauty and is the source of all that beauty itself. And all the pain that you experience as well. We don't want to diminish that or make little of that whatsoever. But the pain that you experience reveals how finite you actually are. And you can't play God of your life. And you don't really control anything that matters whatsoever. And that you are meant to find healing in the one who made you and weeps with those who weep and so desires to bring about redemption in your life that he would lose his most precious asset so that you might find true life. He would give up his own son for your sake. And that's how much God desires a relationship. And he's not just doing it in this guy's life, but he's doing it in your life as well. Now, secondly, here's what we see, is God does what's required to secure a relationship with you. So he's, he's pursuing a relationship with us, but the story doesn't end there. Sometimes it's sort of just ends in church circles of like, okay, well, just like, Enter a new relationship. But God has to do something in order to make that relationship possible whatsoever. And that's kind of how the story progresses as well. It reveals what God's done in order to secure this relationship. So look at verse 30. <clears throat> so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, uh, this guy, because he was able to read, uh, kind of reveals the degree to which he was really, really powerful and influential. Only about 10% of the first century world was literate. Um, and actually, the reason that Philip knows that he's reading Isaiah the prophet is because if you could read in the first century, you typically would read out loud. Uh, I don't know if that's so you could like tell everybody you knew how to read. I'm not sure why they did that. But that's why, I, that's why uh, Philip knows what he's reading because this guy's reading, he's reading out loud. Now look at what happens next. He hears him reading this and he asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now it's sort of a funny image of what's been going leading up to this point, right? Because it's like, it's almost like Philip is like running beside the chariot and like trying to have a conversation. And for any of you who've tried to like run and talk at the exact same time, unless you're like in crazy good shape, you know how poorly this goes. Like I've almost died on 5Ks before because there's been people who've like wanted to talk the entire way. And I'm like, man, if you ask me where I'm from, I die this way. Like I die on this run, right? So you know exactly how this goes. Philip's like going alongside the chariot and he's like, okay, come on, get up into the chariot. He's like, okay, thank you, Jesus, that I'm up in the chariot as well. Now they start working through the passage of Scripture, and it's amazing in God's sovereignty and kindness. He's reading a passage of Scripture that points to the very heartbeat of what God has done in order to secure a relationship with us. Look at this in verse 32. The passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Now, this is where it's helpful to have a little bit of kind of background in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people had something called Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement where the head of the household, uh, usually it was the dad, would go and he would sacrifice a lamb for the sake of the sins of the family. And so it was a pretty gruesome event. I mean, he would go, he would take this lamb, innocent, right? Innocent without blemish. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve to die whatsoever. And he would hold his hand on the head of this lamb and, and he would confess his own sins, and the sins of his family. 
And as he was confessing these sins, the lamb's throat would be slit and it would bleed to death. Really awful image, right? Like, you ain't seen that on an Easter card anytime soon. <laughs> but it communicated something. It communicated the degree of seriousness that sin had, the consequences of sin against a holy God who made you is death. Now, it's interesting what he says next. Verse 35, he finishes that passage of Scripture. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So in this moment, Philip is making a point that Jesus is the true and better Lamb of God. It's almost like in the same way that the head of this household would like lay his hand on this lamb and it would be slain for the sake of the forgiveness of the sins of his family. So God chooses to slay his son without blemish whatsoever so that we might be forgiven of our sins as well. It's proclaiming that Jesus Christ alone, he dies on a cross for our sins as a means of atonement. Now, that's a little bit heavy, right? And it seems like otherworldly. It seems almost like the first century they were barbarians and it's like, we've evolved and we're beyond all this whatsoever. But, and here's what I think you actually know if you think critically about it whatsoever is this actually isn't that crazy whatsoever because like anytime any of you have been in a relationship that's just even a little bit broken, you know you have to do something or somebody has to do something in order to atone for it. So let's just sort of throw out a hypothetical situation. Never happened to me, of course, but let's say you say something stupid to your wife. Um, <laughs> Man, it's amazing how this kind of like process of atonement immediately, boom, makes sense as soon as like something stupid comes out of your mouth. So you say something stupid, you're like, no, 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 like come back, come back. Okay, it's happened. And then like, I don't know, maybe you've had this where you're like rushing out the door and it's 8.30 and you were supposed to be at work at 8.30 and so you say something stupid and then you shut the door and then you sort of feel like self-justified saying something stupid for a period of time. Well, you know, here's all the good reasons. And then it becomes like 8.45 and you're like, I should not have said that, right? I shouldn't have said that whatsoever. And so you strategize the whole day, right? You strategize the whole day to say, like, how do I come home in order to make things right? And so maybe you just do, like, sort of the cliche, I bring home chocolates, I bring home flowers. I mean, all those things are means of atonement, right? Like, take these flowers and may they atone for my stupidity against you. Uh, In our family, I'll just be sort of vulnerable in terms of the way that works. My wife's love language is not so much gifts as much as it is acts of service. And so, man, I'll just say something stupid and I'll just be like, I'm sorry, and I'll turn right around and I'll go downstairs. And, man, I'm, like, cleaning up the kitchen and I'm cleaning pots and pans. And I'm like banging around the pans and the sinks. So it's like, can you hear this? I hope you can hear this, right? <laughs> you, know, you know exactly how this goes. It's all for the sake of kind of atonement, right? Like, hopefully you hear how sorry I am. Will you forgive me? Or a lot of you don't have to be in marriage in order to experience this whatsoever. This can happen in friendships. This can happen with your roommates. You know, you and your roommate have a falling out because like, I don't know. Like, when you have roommates, you have falling outs about stupid stuff all the time. Like, where the spoons go? Like, you guys had a major falling out about the spoons, or the big spoons go here, little spoons go there. You know, that's like a major divisive issue for roommates. And then all of a sudden, like, you guys blow up, and then it's like you don't have a rhythm of kind of repentance and forgiveness of one another. So you both go about your days, and you're like, man, I'm never talking to them again. But then it's like, well, we're roommates, so we got to talk again, right? We got to have some sort of peace. But, like, what do you do? Like, a lot of times, it's just like, you know, okay. I'm going to suck it up, 
I'm going to text you first. I'm going to text you the silly emoji of like a frowny face to communicate like this is how sad I am about the fact that we're not friends with one another. And it's like almost all of that is just like they're means of atonement, right? You think it's just an emoji. It's not. It's much more theological than that. It's a means of atonement. It's a means of being like, here's me. I'm putting myself out there. I'll text first. I'll admit that I was wrong. I'll put the sad face because I'm sad because I love you so much. That's all that's happening. We all know this. Anytime any relationship is broken, we understand that some sort of atonement is necessary in order to make things right again. And that's the way it works between us and God with one major difference. As you cannot do anything to atone for your sins against him. That's the big difference. The Bible teaches that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. And the issue with sin is not so much doing bad things as though it is that, but it's who we wrong when we do those bad things. And every act of sin is an act of cosmic treason where you're declaring to the God who gave you the very breath that fills up your lungs, I don't need you. I can function as God in my own life. In order to heal that brokenness, like it's funny we think this, right? It's like, well, man, I can like do these things in order to make things right again. Well, I'm a spiritual person, so it's not that big of a deal. I'll do all these good moral acts. It's like, it's like you're coming to God and you're like, I got you flowers. Is everything Okay. Like for your wife, she might be like, awesome. But for God, he's not like, oh, I needed flowers. Thank you so much. He made the flowers, right? He's not, oh, thank you so much. I was, oh, I was hoping that you would go to church a few times in order to make everything better always. Oh, man. The bad news is the relationship between you and God is so broken because of your sin, you can do absolutely nothing to atone for it. The good news is that Jesus Christ does for you what you can't do for yourself. And when he dies on a cross, he is acting as the perfect, righteous atonement so that you might be forgiven. He is the perfect lamb of God who goes to the slaughter without a hesitation whatsoever. And he dies in your place for your sins, and he will die so that you might live as long as you will receive and believe what he's done as your means of atonement to heal your relationship with God. That's what, that's what Philip is telling him here, okay? That is the gospel that's the very heartbeat of what it is that we believe. Now, <clears throat> third, it's amazing that the story doesn't end even there, but what this guy gets is that because of what God has done, that I am meant to radically respond to God securing this relationship. You're meant to radically respond to God's request for a relationship. Now look at how he explains all of this, and look at verse 36 in terms of what he says. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. So here's what we need to see is that God's radical pursuit of this man, God's radical love of this man produced a radical response from this man. He just like so gets this. He, he initiates his own baptism in the middle of a road trip. Now I think about this. Now in the first century, the way they baptized was by immersion. That's why they go into the water and they cut back out of the water and the Greek word baptism means to immerse. So that's why we baptize in this particular way. And, and I just think about like, 
how inconvenient this would have been for this guy, right? He's in the middle of a 1,200-mile road trip. It's not like he can just stop at an Airbnb along the way and change into fresh clothes. I mean, can you imagine all this? Can you imagine all the legitimate reasons this guy could push back in terms of why there's some day in the future that would be a much better time for me to get baptized? Maybe. And I just, maybe I think that in particular because I feel like here for us as a church, I just feel like a lot of times I have to almost like drag people kicking and screaming to get baptized. It's like there's a million potential reasons and excuses and, and it's like, man, and this guy, he so gets God's radical pursuit. He so gets God's radical sacrifice. He decides to immediately respond radically. And here's the crazy thing is this isn't just like, oh, you know, you could like write him off as like this really zealous guy. And, you know, I'm not particularly expressive. I'm not really, he's just like a random type. I'm not really like that. But here's the really crazy thing is this is the pattern of baptism that you see like all throughout the story of Acts. I mean, I'll just give you an example. Acts 2, um, thousands of people believe and they're immediately baptized. The Samaritans do it earlier in Acts 8. Paul does this next chapter in Acts 9. We'll look at that story next week. Cornelius and all his soldiers do it as soon as they believe in Acts 10. Lydia does it in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer does it later in Acts 16. And the Corinthians do the same in Acts 18 as well. In the first century, when Christianity first began, as soon as people grasped the magnitude of God's pursuit of them and God's sacrifice for them, they responded immediately through baptism by immersion. Now, let me kind of put my cards here on the table. My desire is that for some of you in this room, you would actually make that decision today. You would actually decide to kind of follow the example of this Ethiopian man who decides to get baptized immediately and in many ways very inconveniently because he so gets the radical nature of what it is that God has done for him. We had several people do it this morning. And I understand for any of you who need to get baptized, when I'm saying about getting baptized, it might mean that you make the decision to follow Jesus today and you just want to like publicly proclaim that today, which I would love to encourage you to do. It might mean that you believe a few months ago, a few weeks ago, a few years ago, and you haven't been baptized yet following your profession of faith like we see this guy do as well and is seen consistently throughout the New Testament. I would love to challenge you to get baptized today. And I know what you're thinking to yourself. It's like, it's Easter and I wore dockers and I don't want to get those dockers wet. Well, like we took care of some of the logistics and things like that. I will talk about that. But man, I mean, here's the big thing. It's just like, I just want to challenge you with the example of this guy who didn't let like a million good reasons or excuses get in the way of immediate obedience. Here's what I know for, about, for you is like there's always a million good reasons to do nothing or do any, there's a million good reasons not to do anything. That's what I meant to say. There's a million reasons, good reasons not to do anything. But in that moment where a really beautiful opportunity presents itself, all those million good reasons, it's not like they disappear, but they just pale in comparison to what's being offered to you. I mean, I thought about this. I was watching um, football, a.k.a. soccer in America, and, uh, and I don't know if any of you watch the beautiful game as well, but I'm watching this thing, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> during halftime, there's this commercial for Heineken beer, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yuck. <laughs> said that. That's really funny. <laughs> you know you're in Denver when people yell that in the middle of our, of our sermons. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, 
Um, so it's this commercial for a beer. Um, and, and this guy, it, these, are, these are real life people, okay? This isn't sort of made up. They, they're documenting all this happening. People don't know they're being filmed. They walk into a liquor store and they go to the back of this liquor store to go get Heineken. And these people jump out of nowhere and tell them, you have the opportunity of a lifetime. And they're like, what is it? What is it? They're like, how would you like to go watch a Champions League match? It's like the Super Bowl of soccer. How would you like to go watch a Champions League match in Barcelona? And they were like, we'd love to. And they say, how would you like for it to be for free? Like, we'll cover everything. We'll cover the airfare, and we'll cover the tickets, and we'll cover where you stay. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. Absolutely, of course. And then they say to him, well, there's only kind of one little catch. The game is tomorrow, and you have to leave right now. You have to leave right now if you want to go. And you can see all these people that have, like, the biggest smile on their face immediately be like, oh, no. And all of them, like, every single person starts listing a million legitimate reasons to be like, and I got this work thing going on. I got this major project I'm working on. We're doing this at our house. It's a really terrible time for me to get away. And then it's all of a sudden the light bulb goes off, and it's like, man, wait a second. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And they're all just like, man, those things will still be there when I get back. It's fine. And they're like, let's do it. Let's do it, right? Because that's just what we do. Like, in a moment where something really beautiful is offered, it's not that the legitimate excuses disappear. They just pale in comparison to the beauty of what's being offered and extended to us. And in the same way, to any of you in this room who need to get baptized, you want to publicly profess your faith in Jesus, I would say, like, you've got a million good reasons not to. But I think that none of those reasons, even though you stack a million of them on top of one another, they pale in comparison to the beauty of radically responding to the radical pursuit and the radical sacrifice that God has demonstrated towards you. And what I would challenge you with then, we're going to talk about logistics and all that sort of stuff, so don't, don't freak out immediately. But what I would challenge you with then is the same words that the Ethiopian says as soon as he gets what it is that God's done for him. It's like, see, here's water. Why don't I get baptized? I challenge you the same thing. Here's water. Why don't you get baptized? All right, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And uh, I thank you for like these real life stories of these guys that like, at first it seems like we have nothing in common with and then we study your word deeply and it's like we have everything in common with. And uh, I thank you for this guy's example. Thank you for this brilliant man recognizing the, the limitations of his gifts and his wealth and his brilliance. Thank you for him longing for you and thank you that you found him. And I pray that <clears throat> really for men and women in this room here this Easter Sunday, um, there would be a lot of men and women who would understand that this story is meant to be their story as well. And so I do pray, um, I pray for people to get God's radical pursuit of them, um, to see the degree to which you love every single person in this room, personally and individually. I pray that people would understand your uh, radical sacrifice for them, that you love them so much that you would give up your own son so that the broken relationship between you and them has been healed. And I pray for them believing that and receiving that, that they would respond and publicly profess that through baptism. And they would confess that your death is their death, and that your victory is their victory as well. Let's respond rightly. We just ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.